Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in November of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Andy Stern. Mr. Andy Stern began his career as a labor leader and activist. He began his bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in business, but would eventually finish his degree in urban planning. He began his career in 1973 as a welfare caseworker for the Service Employees International Union, and eventually was elected union president. He is a senior fellow at the Economic Security Project. He is the author of Raising the Floor, A Country That Works, Oil from Rockefeller to Iraq, and Who Won the Oil Wars, most revolve around building a more egalitarian and cooperative approach to economic growth. Stern's approach to bargaining and leadership has always been to find common ground with people whom he finds disagreeable. Together, we discussed his techniques for negotiating with employers, what the true goal of unions should be in his eyes, and how to strike a balance between improving employees' lives while keeping employers competitive. It was a pretty interesting conversation, and some of it may not be what you are expecting. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. It's a fascinating story, the Andy Stern story, and... Um, you know, the, the interesting thing for, for us to start off with is you're organizing a tough end of the working class to organize. People who are helpless, powerless, who are marginalized, who have no real bargaining power unless you interjected not only bargaining power but a, a method of kind of enlisting the employer to see some benefits of partnering. So that's a very tough you know, uh, equation to put together. And I just wondered if you tell us, when you started back in the union movement, um, weren't you discouraged? Unions were being busted, outsourced, you know, mass production industries are, are going away, almost a deliberate union busting uh, tactic, uh, you know, of American employers. And here you are organizing the service workers of America who have very little in the way of bargaining power, strength, and power. So uh, why did you pick on that segment of, the, of, of, of unions to start your career? It's, a, it's an interesting uh, story. So we, we'll get a little insight as to how it happened and some of, the, some of the projects you engaged in before we talk about the implications for the future. So how is, how is Andy, the, the union organizer and union guy, how did he get started with it? So I got started by, like many people coming out of college, having no good work to do. I sold newspapers on the street corner of Boston. I was a substitute teacher. And then as, as they, my mom said, I got my first real job, which was a, a government job for the Service Employees Union, which represented uh, welfare workers in, in Philadelphia. And my story is I wish I had had a grandfather who had been a great union leader. My middle name is Lewis. I pretended for a while it was John L. Lewis, but Google kind of busted me and I was named after my grandfather Lewis, who was a butcher in Newark, New Jersey. And so 
you know, I came to the union movement because one day they were, when I first got to my job and before I'd gotten a paycheck, they were serving free pizza. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to the union meeting because I knew very little about unions to, to both hear the reports about the bargaining, but also to get the free pizza. And I was the last one in the room when they were electing the assistant shop steward. And so my career, which my parents had hoped would end up being a lawyer, I had hoped would end up being some kind of organizer or change agent, was changed by pizza. I see. Okay, so you're an accident that happened. Okay. Well, there was a lot of principles and policies, but I had never thought the labor movement would be where I would necessarily try to change people's lives. I thought more individually as a psychologist or a community organizer or a lawyer, but the union seemed to have all of those characteristics combined. Okay, so, but the service unions, they would be, uh, you know, they wouldn't be seen as, as the power unions of the day. I mean, it would be the manufacturing unions, the trade unions. The service union, you'd have the minimalist bargaining power. So how did you gear up to be a bargaining guy in that in, in, in that element. You have really, you know, as you characterize it, the, 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 the service people don't have any organize, organizational strength inherent in their, in their positions. Employers can play one off against the other, can, can hire people to break a union at will. They can bring immigrants, hire immigrants to break the, any union like that. And then, of course, outsourcing, although it wouldn't directly affect the service guys, still have a peripheral effect on it. So you're organizing, and you did a hell of a job, following your record, you did a hell of a job in doing that. And, and you, you apparently came up with a strategy not just to bargain with strength, but bargain kind of as a, a, a cooperating partner and try to sell that to employers who, on, on the face of it, would never accept anything like that. Yet you ended up with two million union members uh, at, at the, a few years ago. How, what made you go into it to, to fight the battles that you had to fight, the frustrations and all of that? It had to be year in, year in and year out of just, you know, blocking and tackling at the basic level, you know? How did you live through all that? You're a smart guy. You're a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, it's, uh, it makes no sense. The good news was is I took a basic economic course when I was in college. I mean, the most basic. And the one thing I learned is if people are going to compete on the basis of wages, you know, that any union or any other institution that adds a non-competitive cost onto people is really going to be resisted with maximum strength. And that's what was happening to the labor movement, whether it was foreign competition right. in steel or auto or whether it was the person who bought some mops and buckets and decided he was going to be a janitorial contractor. You know, there was always an opportunity for someone to come in and do it for less, whether they be immigrant right, or native right, born. And what right. we learned was that the union could not be successful unless we could, as the economists would say, take wages out of competition. Okay. So when the building owner in New York City, he went to the country club, and was sitting down explaining you know, how complicated it was to run his office building and how crazy it was that a janitor was making 20 bucks an hour with full benefits, he better learn that the guy he was talking to who owned the building across the street was paying 20 bucks an hour 
with benefits. So the first question he was going to ask is, can I get your guy to come across the street for $15 an hour? So we learned that unless we could organize a market and take wages out of competition, we weren't going to be successful. So organizing one building or one hospital or one nursing home really was not going to be an effective strategy. And it made you think differently. You know, and that was one of the problems we know the auto workers had is all the non-union foreign transports right. came in with lower wages and benefits. And either union wages bring everyone up or non-union wages bring everyone down. So you had to have a strategy that was based on organizing not an employer but a market. I see. But what would be the critical mass, let's say, for buildings, the building trades in New York? Uh, did, you have a, did you figure there was a critical mass in the, in the amount of buildings or... If you had uh, a number like 50 or 100, that was enough to begin the, uh, to begin the organizing? Or did you wait years to, to set up a, a whole uh, portfolio of buildings before you went in for the organization uh, move? How did that work? So our basic discussion with the employers was this. At, if you sign an agreement to recognize the union because a majority of workers want to be represented, we will not start bargaining our first contract until 50% of the market had signed the same agreement. Okay. So we were saying until we were a majority organization, not in your building, but in the sector, in the industry, whether it was Manhattan or in certain cases, different markets in the suburbs, we wouldn't begin. And we called that a trigger agreement. So it would only be triggered when the union had done its job. So the good employers who were not resisting unions, but who had economic interest in not being paying wages and benefits that made them unable to keep their contracts, would sign quickly. And then the campaign would begin. And as we said, we used the power of persuasion first. And if that didn't work, we used the persuasion of power. And by that, we meant we would go to the building owners, we would go to the pension funds, we would go to the political uh, elected officials, we would go to the tenants, all of whom we would say, you know, that we want these workers to have rights. The wonderful thing about janitors, security officers, home care, child care workers, mm -hmm. is they have a good moral compass and right. people appreciate they work very hard and don't have the greatest of jobs or life. And so, you know, we use the moral persuasion and lots of other techniques to convince eventually a majority of the employers to come in. And then when we would bargain our first contract, then our job was to bring more and more of the market in. And, and remarkably, in places like New York or Chicago or L.A., with all the buildings big and small, over 90 percent of the workers are represented by the union. Well, that's a, a, a good point I want to talk about. Is it only in the major cities that are really world-class world class cities that you can do this because a, a city like New York can't afford to be shut down by its service workers and it has the money to pay the service workers if it wants to pay but outside of New York City between Chicago and New York and LA those areas how have you found it to organize in those areas where you don't have a, a huge city with infrastructure that's world-class and world-influencing that basically says, look, we don't want any trouble with our service workers, with the hospital workers, the public employees. So would that be a better market for you simply because of that, as opposed to nationally across the board? 
But, you know, what you learn during this work the hard way, usually by making lots of mistakes, is that every industry, as you might expect, has a different strategy. And I think sometimes the unions don't understand, you know, to organize a hospital is quite different than organizing Blackstone or Sam Zell's real estate interests. Uh -huh. So what we learned in, in the janitorial and security area is that many of the contractors were regional or national. Many of the owners of buildings, as the country has changed how real estate is owned through real estate investment oh, okay, trusts, okay. are regional and national and sometimes global. And many of the pension funds that own these buildings own buildings in every single city. So when we showed up in Pittsburgh or Cincinnati or Toledo oh, or Detroit or Cleveland, cities that obviously you could not get the same kind of wages right. any more than the owners could get the same kind of rents. You know, but there were a way to use many of the same tactics, the same relationships, and sometimes use the power that a big union in New York had, which was a premier market for an owner or contractor, you know, that when you went into bargaining, you not only talked about that market, but you talk about, well, as long as we're here at the table, let's talk about you own in Detroit or the buildings you own, you know, in Miami. And so, you know, we learned to aggregate our power, both amongst the different local unions and amongst the different uh, real estate owners and real estate contractors and just built a strategy, you know, based on that understanding. There were lots of different ways to get people's attention and to add value to their relationship. Well, it was clear in, 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 in following the book that uh, you specifically, because we're, we're really talking to you, really, really figured out there were many strategies, lots of strategies that can be employed. You don't look at a union, lay people wouldn't see a union as doing that. A lay person would see, uh, let's say the auto union is basically muscling the employer because it doesn't think about what value it can add to employer, at least not in the traditional old days, uh, you know, uh, in the heyday of mass production industries. So basically it was just a mass, you know, uh, strength versus strength uh, relationship. And of course, with the outsourcing, you know, partly the outsourcing was driven partly by break, you know, to break the union movement. Uh, uh, if, and, and I think you're kind of aware of all of those kinds of globalization issues. So they could divide and conquer in the production industries and uh, basically decimate union membership. And I think you ran into, with the AFL-CIO uh, situation, old-timers trying to hold on to what they had and certainly not trying to innovate and look for partnership agreements with the people that already had, uh, had, had agreements with, but just basically got eroded away and sat on what lead they had and what perks they had. And you, you were an ups, you're an upstart union essentially saying, let's take most of our dues money and get more members, more members, and we'll fight a battle strategically, whether we ally with the employer, whether we lobby for the employer uh, with legislatures, a multiplicity of strategies, which I think is unheard of in the, in, in the union movement. And I'm just wondering how it was you got the insights to do that and why you couldn't convince the AFL-CIO uh, leadership that was, you know, their membership was being eroded away. And what's the union membership, in spite of the fact that you, you grew, union membership from 30 years ago is severely down. Why wouldn't union leaders recognize that something different had to happen? 
Because I you you fought that battle as it as yeah, it well, the, the, first, the first thing you have to convince union leaders it started in my own union is that you know struggling is nice and striking is interesting and organizing is wonderful, but what the members expect you to do is win, and by win I mean not beat the employer, but to change their lives and to change the members' lives you have to do it in a way that you don't make your employers uncompetitive. And, you know, for instance, in auto and steel, there are two very situa different situations. In fact, there are more cars being produced in the United States today, you know, than any time in history, but they're all done by, a lot of them are done by transplants. A majority is done by transplants who never showed up union, as opposed to steel, where all the steel is made in India or Russia or somewhere else and imported. And so even the different unions in the industrial situations had different potential strategies. But what that wasn't going to work was just beat up on your existing employer, you know, and think that, that somehow they did something wrong and not appreciate they're trying to survive just like Eastman Kodak, who didn't survive by, you know, the one thing we know is change is inevitable. It's progress that's optional. So you have to get, teach union members this wasn't about ideology or being political or correct. It was about changing members' lives and if partnering with positive employers or helping them get more money through Medicaid or getting more union members to use Kaiser was a way to increase their ability to pay you. That was part of your job just as much as it was to go to the bargaining table and make sure that the workers shared in the success of the employer. And it just – it's about – what is the purpose of the union? If it's about fighting, then fine. You know, it's a you know maybe for a lot of juvenile delinquents, it's a good thing, good job to find. But for workers, and particularly the the incredible people who take care of our children and take care of our parents and clean our buildings and guard our buildings, you know, they deserve someone who's smart enough to think about them and not just worry about what their leadership's brothers and sisters are going to accuse them of, and then. You know, we went to the AFL and said, you know, there's a better way to do this work. And, you know, it doesn't help us if we have 15 different unions trying to organize healthcare workers. An employer one day is dealing with Union X, who has one set of ideas and one set of health benefits. And then they go to Union Y, who has another set of ideas and another health benefits. They're one employer. There really should be one union or one union coalition. Because that would... It, that would make the work e easier for the employer to have one set of benefits and one set of policies. But every union thought, no, we're an island unto ourselves. And it's, you know, the employers can, should be able to deal with this. And in many cases, we just drove employers both crazy. We made their pension plans, you know, too risky because there was not enough capital in any single one of them. We didn't have a big enough pool of benefits to buy health care effectively. And we just didn't do our job, which is to make our employers successful so our members could share in the success. Yeah. Why wouldn't, uh, and I don't want to accuse anybody or put anyone down, that's not the point here, but for example, in the AFL-CIO, you, you fought a, a philosophical battle with that union. You were part of it uh, uh, to the point where you had to make a rupture. I mean, that's a, that was a huge, huge rupture at the time, it's, it's still like, you know, like yeah. wow, why would that happen? And it, it, it wasn't that you were a stranger 
to the AFL-CIO. They knew what you were doing. They saw the, re the re results. Why couldn't you bring them over, let's say, to a more proactive, multiplicity approach as you employed? Why, why didn't that happen? They were losing ground. They were losing clout. I, I think you eloquently made the point. You were expecting the Democratic Party for, for uh, 30 years to intervene and change laws and make, make life better for, for unions, and that didn't happen. So you're really on a self-help program. You're the political, you know, the political winds, we're not going to help you. Why would the AFL-CIO just basically sit there and boil slowly? Why? So, you know, we, we, our first, you know, tagline to the union, the SEIU, uh, was our theory strategy was build it and they will come. That no union for a long period in history had been successful growing. So why should anybody listen to us any more than they would listen to any other person who had an, a theory? So we set out to change the union to grow stronger, not smaller, and to organize people and make our members understand that when there's workers down the street in a different hospital or a different building doing your exact same job for less wages and benefits, that your wages and benefits are at stake. So organizing wasn't about some philosophical, ideological principle. It was about building the strength and taking wages out of competition. And we then changed the way we did our work. We invested differently in the union, and we grew another 1.2 million. And at, at one point, we in, in 2000, we went to Pittsburgh, which was the home of the CIO, where John L. Lewis had created a new labor movement, and we announced that we were now the largest union in the AFL, CIO. So a service union, who once we were affectionately called SEI who, yeah. you know, had now shown there was a different way to do this work. And we just assumed that once people saw there was a different way to do it, they'd all ask us, how could it happen? We sent our organizers to work with other unions. We, you know, gave lots of trainings and seminars. But in the end, people who were getting elected for office were worried, A, if we brought more members in the union, would they vote for me? And maybe some of them would be of a different gender or a different nationality or speak a different language, and maybe they wouldn't like me as much as my old buddies did who were the Irish or the Italians or you know the white workers that had been the leaders of the union for a long time. A lot of people didn't want to have to rearrange their resources to be successful. You know, you can't sell a product without salespeople, and that's really what organizers are. And But that meant that you had to change some of the jobs of the business agents or the field representatives. You had to spend less money on health and safety and more on a people who could do communications or other ways to economists and other kinds of jobs. And in the end, people just didn't want to change. You know, they were getting elected. They had a nice life and they couldn't hold in their mind or their heart enough that there was some worker somewhere, in our case, cleaning a trash can out or cleaning a toilet who was sending a little bit of money every two weeks to the union because the union was supposed to change their life, and too many people were worried about their own life and not that worker's life. Well, it's, I can't say that that's a surprise, but the union, they missed an opportunity to, to regenerate the union movement in this country. So let's talk about the prospects of unions in this country. Uh, I would argue that 
yes, the, the Democrats would be more, more favorable to unions, the FDR, the FDR effect, but in reality, uh, the, the foreign policy, the financial policies of the country are basically monolithic, whether it's Democrat or Republican, and that you would not find a sympathetic ear to unions other, on, other than on election times when they might want you to either canvas or give money. So that I think you learned the hard way that uh, you couldn't depend on uh, an anti-Taft-Hartley um, uh, state of mind uh, from, from, from either party. So you're on your own there. You're also facing, you know, automation and de-skilling and uh, uh, outsourcing and corporations that can flexibly move on a dime and send work here and there depending on how much pressure you might be putting on them. So that a union strategy, I think, and you got this, had to be a global strategy. It had to be a strategy that not only was global in the U.S. sense, but in a worldwide sense. And I don't think you got a chance to develop that idea to its uh, fullest extent. But at the end of the day, with the trends going, and I think you've, it was clear in the book that you understood these trends, you know, everybody's going to be a contingent worker. Everybody's going to be subject to less and less bargaining power, uh, more and more monopoly, you know, people holding the high ground, finance in this country, uh, uh, puts the American working class either out of business or on a contingent basis. And the only barrier between death and, and, and civilization is a union movement that's coherently organized and understands what that trend is and how to deal with it. Your comments on that, you must have thought about this a lot because uh, you, you pushed it to its limit. And now where can you go? So one is, you know, and it was hard to develop this global concept, but we used to say capital went global, finance went global, trade went global, and unions think we're going to exist as a local, you know, in the face of the globalization of every other parts of the market economy. So, you know, we tried and, and you know, opened offices in 10 cities around the world. We worked together with people to run uh, global con campaigns, uh, trying to hold accountable like G4S, which is the largest security company in the world. You know, we learned that you could pay the workers in India to strike for very little money, right? Financed by the American unions who had a lot of money and 50,000 workers striking in India cost almost nothing, but could bring the right kind of pressure on the company you know, where a strike in the U.S. would have been somewhat negligible and very expensive. So you, you began to learn that we never really fully developed. But I think we also need to learn that, the, as you were saying, the economy is not monolithic, right? There are people who will always work for government. Mm -hmm. That'll be one set of circumstances. There are people who work for very successful private employers, mm -hmm. right? They will continue to be there. But we need to understand two, I think, are three little simple things. I like to say, think about today's economy in the 21st century. The largest media company in the world is Facebook. It, it publishes no that it of its own. The largest transportation company is Uber. It owns no cars. The largest hospitality is Airbnb. It has no hotel rooms. And the largest retailers are Amazon and Alibaba. They have no inventory of their own. They're just selling other people's goods. So that's different than the Ford, GM, Chrysler, GE economy. 
And we got to understand that's one part of the economy. Contingent workers, part-time staffing companies, freelancers, entrepreneurs, platform workers are another part of the economy. And so you need different strategies for, and then there's a global part of the economy that we talked about where companies are global. So you have public, global, traditional you know, big employers and now platform entrepreneur con contingent workers, there's going to be a different kind of union strategy in each one. And what you're seeing, which employers are going to have to decide how they feel about this, in the absence of collective bargaining, which is how this country in the 20th century decided they were going to provide benefits like health care or retirement, mm -hmm. in the absence of it, people are now going to government to solve their problems. The fight for $15 an hour minimum wage, paid family leave, paid sick leave, Obamacare, ideas about universal retirement. So now, instead of these very tailored boutique ideas that employers and employees would develop, people are developing this kind of mass Walmart typing solutions to all problems by going to the government. I say to the employers, this is what you get when there's not unions. You know, people are just going to go get things that $15 an hour is perfectly fine for Goldman Sachs. It's not the same for a small restaurateur. Right. And so in the absence, though, of collective bargaining to shape solutions like workers in Cleveland should make less money cleaning a building than a worker in New York should, you know, you're going to get one size fits all. And then you're going to get lots of litigation. And unfortunately, the labor movement's trying to go back and make everybody the employee, which is not the right answer for the 21st century. But there's going to need to be different roles for labor organizations. One of the things that we've done very well is provide for benefits. And so we should think about how do we become a provider of benefits like AARP is for Medicare wraparound. You know, how can we take the benefits that we've developed for our members and be, exist in the marketplace? How can our training centers be used for not just union members but for other union workers? You know, could we, like other countries, have a role in providing workers' comp or unemployment insurance? We just need to, to think of 21st century roles that add value to the economy, can add value to employers, because a lot of employers don't want to provide health care. They don't want to do training anymore. They don't want to take the risk of a pension. Well, maybe there's a role for worker organizations to play in that space. And so I think we got to, like every other business to be successful in the 21st century, you got to redo your business model, you know, to respond to the technological and global changes that we're facing. And, you know, the labor movement is no different. Well, it seems to me, though, that the, the most, most difficult aspect of that is to in, in develop a worker, worker's consciousness that allows them to see that as a worker in general, there's a certain position and a certain bargaining power inherently that you have or don't have. And if somehow you don't all join together, maybe in a national organization, that basically says, we have a national workers organization. And I don't know what strata of worker that would be because you know a divide and conquer strategy would be I tell every worker they're going to be an entrepreneur and they're going to be in business for themselves and right. and you know why do you want to be a worker because you're you're automatically pigeonholed into something that's a second class citizen and you don't want to be that whereas if ninety percent of the people are going to be that uh, banded together in a in a in a in a, in a, in a workers organization almost independent of the employer but you know rec or, you know representing the structure of what they do. 
and it, it's not nothing declassé about that. Uh, it would seem to me that would be a strategy to try to that, that encompasses what you've said in a in a cleaner and clearer fashion. You're you're ultimately fighting uh, employees who employees tell them you're not really a worker, but you are a worker, but you're not a worker because if you're a worker, you're kind of a low class citizen and you're not like us Goldman Sachs people and you don't want to be classified as that. Whereas if you had a mass class, class, classification of the bulk of the population, that stigma disappears. You are totally right and I think, you know, we see little bits of it like where the freelancers union in New mm -hmm. York, you know, represents anybody whether they're a freelancer, mm -hmm. you know, who cleans houses or they're a freelancer who provides digital content or writes freelance articles, you know, in the end, you need someone to represent you, you need benefits, you need a lobbying power, you know, to pass laws that make sure you don't get ripped off as a freelancer, you know, you need access to 401ks or IRAs and eventually to paid leave. So there's, yes, I mean, your point is the right point, which is we need to conceptualize, you know, different kinds of institutions and organizations that workers want to belong to because they provide them value. And a sheer workplace-only organization may not be the mm -hmm. highest value to workers who don't expect to stay very long you know, with their employer. We look at TIA crap at the university level, and you can move from university right. to university, right. exactly. you know, and you can carry your pension. You don't worry about, oh my God, my employer's in the red zone, is my pension going to be any good? Mm -hmm. You carry your pension on a portable basis, and then you can annuitize it, you know, through the power that TIACREP has to do things on scale. You know, and people need to think about, well, why aren't unions having portable pension benefits and portable other kinds of benefits that don't rely on what the employer does, you know, but is much more akin to what I need in my life to self-manage my work life for myself and my family. Well, let me come at it a little different way. Uh uh, we're Georgists here, and I don't know if you know anything about the old Henry George philosophy, which essentially said that uh, if you tax land, you solve a lot of society's problems. And we would kind of generalize that to say, if you tax monopoly, you'd solve a lot of problems. I mean, monopoly is, yeah, can be found in many places, and land certainly and resources are a big, a big repository of, of it. But more and more, uh, the world is, uh, is, is identified with strong, powerful central monopolies who basically control the conditions of everybody's life. And uh, they, with automation and capital investment and hiring, uh, you know, people from the University of Pennsylvania and all of that, uh, basically can run the world with fewer and fewer high-paid people and basically marginalize everybody or eliminate their bargaining power. And then how do these people get paid? So we argue less tax monopoly in a, as a general fund, a fund that goes to every citizen because to tax monopoly and tax land and all of that and, and pile it up and give it to the government, I mean, what's to say that you're not giving it to Joseph Stalin, you know, as the ultimate taxer? But let's say you have a citizen's dividend with this because you're lacking the purchasing power broad-based now through the, uh, through the economy, along with workers' organizations and unionizations of the type we've just talked about. Now you have a potent organizing, organizing force of money that comes from the creation of wealth, 
but lots of it is reposited in a monopoly, which is really everybody's money, not just the few people who can create the monopoly. And then with, with uh, across the board workers' organizations who are funded, like everyone else, with that kind of money, now you've got the, you've got the grist for a real powerful movement of the type you talked about. And you kind of, what was interesting to me, you had the germ of this idea in your, in your marketing and, and your conception of bringing value to the employer. You kind of got the idea that you, gotta, you can't be the same old union kind of thinker. Well, one step beyond is what are you going to do for everybody who basically is going to be without bargaining power and as, as concentration of wealth and, and, and uh, the aggregate of capital gets into a narrow, narrow base. Take a Facebook and a Google. They have very few people relative to the value they create. These are huge monopolies. How are they going to dispense purchasing power? They monopolize, uh, whether it's airwaves or people's time, by being first mover into that space. And once they're there, you, you, don't, you don't have competition. And lots of companies are doing that. And the wealth, you could, dig, you could have 10 SEIU unions and you couldn't dig back all of the wealth and value that's, that's there. But if you had a citizen dividend and you had workers' organizations. So you have, haven't read my next book. I okay, okay. My next book is Why a Universal Basic Income Can Rebuild the Economy and Restore the American, it traces, you know, exactly your philosophy, starting with Thomas Paine, who called on America to give every American 15 pounds sterling for the land that we should okay. commonly own. And it talks about using a carbon tax to provide a citizen's dividend as Alaska uses natural resource extraction to provide. Did you write that, Did you write that book? What? Did you write the book? Did you write I did. It? it just came out in June. Oh, I didn't see it. Okay. Yeah. Well, then spontaneously, I'm advocating something that I didn't see you, you advocate. So I have to read yeah, that. I, I, you took me a longer time than you to get there. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, having looked at what you're talking about, which is that technology, you know, is both monopolizing because it allows scaling of things right. so quickly, A, and then B, that technology like truck, autonomous trucks being the most... Right one that will hit shortly are going to eliminate three and a half truck driver jobs and five million mm -hmm. supplemental jobs and so I, I, I talked my way through uh, lots of people Andy Grove and others who on the Intel. technology side Intel, and lots okay. of worker advocates on the other side come to the conclusion that there's a, such reputable research now that says that there's going to be a massive disruption in the job market and that I then decide what it answers there are and I look at some of the same people and the Georges and the Thomas Paines and the mm -hmm. Frederick Hayek's and the Charles Murray's and the Martin Luther King's mm -hmm. who all said the current welfare system first of all you know was never what people really wanted they wanted to end poverty not give people all these categorical programs and two is that the way you need to fund this is by taking our natural wealth our citizens wealth as well as other sources of income and pooling them and giving them back to people so they have, you know, they can meet their basic needs and they also can have a strike fund in essence, right? Well, and then on top of that, what you're saying is they need organization. Yeah, you exactly. Know, that to help, help reshape this world. Absolutely. So, uh, 
So you have to you have to promise. I should have interviewed you for the book. Yeah, well, it's, we have to come back. We're going to do you again. I'll read the book, and then we'll 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 give our ideas and your ideas as a reshaped union movement. Union standing for a people's organization, not necessarily to overthrow the government, but to get a decent life. I think you're. I think you've got the right balance. I mean, you 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 work within the system. You put your finger on where you had some strength, and you discovered where you had weakness, and you 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 evolved and grew, uh, in, in in the ways that you looked at the world and what could be done in in the face of technological change, and that's why we think you're just a superb, superb union guy. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's amazing that you. Uh, I, I guess uh, I guess that Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania training paid off. I don't know, but. Uh, it also comes clear that you you care about people. You know that's an important that's an important thing. So that and that's what I to say. It's very hard for people who say they came to the labor movement to change people's lives when you offer them a way to actually do that, even though it's not the way they were taught originally, including myself. You know, it wasn't going to the bargaining table and no contract, no work. You know, it was trying to be thoughtful and creative on both sides of the table, you know, what was going on. You know, if you don't understand that the point is to change the workers' lives and also not put your employer out of business, and it doesn't mean at times things don't get tense and there's a lot of friction, mm. but it does mean in the end you understand the basic equation is that, you know, winning is changing the workers' lives without making the employer lose you know, their ability to compete in, in the economy. And so how you do your work of winning becomes very important. And, you know, it's so sad that people can't see, you know, that even the best employer will tell you, you know, I would love to do a lot more, but I, I live in a world where I, I got competitors and a board of directors. Yeah. You can't put me out of business, pal. You know, mm. go go take care of the other guys who are paying two thirds of what I'm paying and don't have benefits before you keep coming and ask me to raise right, it, raise right, it, right, raise right, it more. Because yeah. at sense. some point, I'm not going to be a. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, we have to agree to continue this. I have to read your book. And I will come back into that debate on uh, kind of a viewpoint on what a, what a plan would be for a citizen's dividend. And also, we have to think about a globalized approach, which you made a foray into, because, you know, uh, as long as one nation can play off another, it's the same problem in a bigger, in a bigger scale. So, uh, so uh, I've had some homework to do, but it was... Uh, well, I really, you know, listen, I... There's so much of what the Georgists, you know, have talked about for a long time, you know, that the world is coming in your direction. Mm. And so I just say to you, there's President Obama yesterday for the first time in his term in office was asked about a universal basic income mm. because of the threat of technology mm. by a guy from the MIT Media Lab, Joe Ito. And... He said, we are going to have to have a serious debate in the next 10 to 20 years. Absolutely. You know, about how I, for people in the face of technology, you know, people have talked about some of your ideas of, you know, taxing the robots or taxing the monopolists mm. or taxing the land or taxing the carbon mm. and providing a dividend for all Americans. So I just want to say the work you've done your whole life is now coming, you know, around that people are kind of getting, 
you know, that there are is a different way to think about the future, and a lot of the ideas that that have been promoted by the Georgists are, I think, going to have a lot of current. Well, it's coming full circle. It, 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 you know, you got guys like Stiglitz now realizing and agreeing that uh, that monopoly uh, and and monopoly is not only land. I tell people, look, the federal government can print four trillion dollars out of thin air. I mean, that's a monopoly. Also, I said, why not pay? One trillion of that to eliminate student loans rather than put it all in right, the bank. Right, exactly. You know, I mean, so we look at the taxing monopoly in a, in a very broad way now, as, as you have looked at the union movement. So let's continue this. Well, let's do that. And we'll, uh, we'll push it. And I invite you to come visit us and uh, see what we're doing. We, we've kind of changed our world dramatically here. And of course, there are many smart talks which you can. You can see up on, online now there's at least 40 of them. And we're trying to cover all of the bases that will affect people. And not just a one-trick pony kind of thing here. And you've done that for the union movement. And it's, it's our compliments to you, Andy. Uh, it, it's a wonderful book, a spectacular career on your part. And I don't think it's over yet. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.